I think we'll go ahead and get started, and if there are any, if anybody else wants to come in late, they can come on in and join us, but we'll go ahead and start. Um, I'll start us off with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this day that you've provided for us in ways that we only begin to grasp. We grasp it through your word, through the, through the evidences, the ways you manifest yourself in life. Seeing your sovereign hand at work in our lives and the way you orchestrate the very circumstances through which we live. and So we give you thanks, Lord, for being good to us, for rescuing us, for making us right with you, for making known to us your son Jesus. And so we ask that tonight you continue to make him known, that you make him large in our vision that you help us to see him glorious and exalted, holy. So we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so last week, just to recap very quickly, if you're expecting me to answer all the eschatological questions that could possibly be asked about the book of the Revelation or New Testament eschatology... I am not going to do that. My main goals are to get us a little bit of familiarization with the book of Revelation, to perhaps dispel a few misconceptions that we may have that culturally are quite common and in Christendom have been around for some time, but maybe don't work out when you scrutinize them a little bit. Introduce a few repeated themes, symbols, ideas that are throughout the book of Revelation, and also connect those ideas with the rest of the New Testament to foster an idea that Revelation isn't some disconnected text attached to the end of the New Testament, but that it's actually part of it, that it's a natural outgrowth from the rest of the New Testament. And to grow our affections for Christ, to see him larger, just as the Apostle John saw him, to see him as exalted, no longer humiliated and rejected, but ruling and reigning. Talked a little bit about the sorts of tools I bring to interpretation, and then talked about the opening of the book, about chapter 1, and stated some of what I believe are the purposes of the book, which are to display Jesus in his exalted state, to demonstrate his sovereignty, to challenge the professing church, to stand strong against compromise and against the attacks of Satan. So today, we'll go ahead and start off, we'll read Revelation chapter 1 again, starting in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear, and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So that's chapter 1. Fairly straightforward as far as the book of Revelation goes. But I wanted to start by reading, but then I knew I wanted to back up and discuss something briefly that I had mentioned last week. Last week, towards the end, I had said that the book of Revelation presents Satan sort of like Jesus' toy, that he's like a toy in his hands. And I just wanted to clarify what I meant by that, because I could understand how that might have been misconstrued in a few ways. So the way that I intended it to mean was that in contrast to Jesus' greatness and in respect to the way in which Jesus controls the course of history... Satan is not in control of his own actions. That when it comes to the sovereignty of Jesus, that when it comes to his preeminence in all things and his command as God, the creature, the created being, Satan, does not get to just do whatever it wants, if that makes sense to you. I was not intending to communicate that Satan is not a powerful creature whose attacks on people, especially believers and the church, can be grievous and cause real and lasting pain. Because that certainly is true, and that's going to be seen throughout the text here. But despite Satan's power, what there is of it, and his rage, none of his efforts to confound the plan of God ever achieve their intended goal. I think sometimes people envisage the universe like this. Like... There's a dead even that Jesus and Satan are somehow arm wrestling and we bite our nails and we don't know who's going to quite win it. That sometimes because, because Satan is real and we are on this earth 
and we have not seen the consummation of the age, that it is easy to think that it's like this, that they are arm wrestling to see who's going to win. But that is not what John is communicating. That is not what Jesus is communicating through the revelation. What Jesus is communicating is something entirely different, that it's more like this, Something like that, cartoonish as it may be, that it's more like Jesus, exalted crown, showing up and winning. That Jesus is running it all. So, while sometimes it feels like that, like there's a dead heat, that it's kind of on an even playing field, what I was attempting to communicate last week by the book of the Revelation displays Satan as Jesus' toy, is that Jesus controls him. And we've seen this in the, and all of the other fallen angels. So we've seen it over and over again in the Gospels. They beg him not to torment them. It's not an even playing field. They are not on the same level. Jesus runs the show. James chapter 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That is true. 1 John 2, 12-13 says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. So there's some sort of overcoming that both Jesus has accomplished and we can accomplish at the same time. And I think that is what the book of the Revelation is, is communicating. That is what John is trying to... That was what I was attempting to say by saying he's a toy in Jesus' hands. And where I was pulling that from, if we'll all open up to Revelation chapter 12, because I think this is an important... This is an important, almost central aspect of the comfort of the saints... That when we read Revelation chapter 12, one, this does a couple of things. It sort of confounds historicist interpretations. That is to say that everything has happened in the past. It confounds futurist interpretations, which is to say everything in the Revelation is about something that's going to happen in the future. It kind of forces you into a different reading. So I won't draw too many conclusions. I'll let you draw some conclusions there. But let's read this together. Scene changes from what he's watching before. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who was one to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So is this, in John's perspective, future? Who is the child? It's Christ. It's Jesus. He's the one that is caught up to heaven, who's going to rule the, the nations with a rod of iron. It's clearly a messianic reference. So, is all of Revelation future? Clearly not. Clearly, some of the scenes, some of the visionary experience is past tense for John. 
He's seeing something where God is explaining how the universe works, where God is explaining what is happening in redemptive history. So we see that at some point in the past, there was this this serpent, this dragon, this evil creature who rebelled and took a bunch of angels with him and attempted to stop this woman from ever producing the Messiah. So we can kind of identify who the woman is. Who do we think the woman might be? Could be Mary, could be, could be Israel, could be church. It's, it could be all three at the same time. An identification of the saints throughout all time, of the, of the true Israel of God, what Paul would call in Romans, the Israel of promise. So all of them kind of wrapped up into one visionary experience. So yes, it's Mary, yes, it's Israel, yes, it's also the church... So she gave birth to the male child, so he was caught up to God, verse 6, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. First thing, the serpent, the serpent, the dragon rebels, how does that work out for him? How, how does it, does it work for him? Does he win? No, he doesn't win. Okay. He's cast down to earth. So then he stands before the woman who's about to give birth so that he can devour the child. How does that work out for him? It doesn't work out for him. Okay? Then the woman is able to get away where God takes care of her. So, so far, Satan is how many for two? He's O for two, right? Keep going forward. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. So how many is he now? How's he scoring? He's still zero. He's still a big loser. And that dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of a of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death therefore rejoice O heavens and you who dwell in them but woe to you O earth and sea for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. Okay, so he's losing again, and, when, and he's really mad about it. He's not happy. It's not a good scene. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. So he tries again. Does he win? No, still not winning. Verse 15, the serpent poured out water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. So he's got a new tactic this time. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. He's still striking out. No matter what he tries, no matter how he tries it, no matter how many times he tries it, he still loses in God's economy. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. So that's what I was intending to convey, was that when we, when we think about 
Satan, it is true that the devil is real, that, that demons are real, that there, is, that there are spirit beings who oppose God, but it is not an even match. And they do not stand toe-to-toe like that. Okay? Um, so John knows from personal experience how painful the attacks of Satan can be. As I said, church tradition teaches that before he was exiled to Patmos, he was boiled, uh, I think Eusebius, the church historian, says in oil by the local Roman government because he would not stop preaching Jesus and he would not, he would not uh, worship their gods. So he was boiled and when he did not die, they said, fine, we will just send him away to this huge rock in the middle of the water. So he knows from personal experience how painful the attacks of Satan can be. He communicates in one nine that he is a participant in the suffering that naturally comes when people follow Jesus. His vision of the dragon confirms that the enemy of our souls is a determined and vicious being, bent on defacing or destroying everything that reflects the goodness and glory of God. Nevertheless, at every turn, Jesus overcame and overcomes. One of the great ironies of human history is that the suffering and humiliation of the Lord of glory resulted in his great kingship, the defeat of his enemies, the eternal salvation of his people who will forever reign with him. So if you pay special attention to chapter 12, verse 11, and they have conquered him, speaking of the dragon, they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. In the same counterintuitive way that Jesus defeated the enemy through his suffering and even his death, in that same counterintuitive way, we followers of Jesus participate in suffering that results in victory over Satan, just as our master demonstrated. So if we link this idea to the rest of the New Testament, we can turn our attention to this same principle that Paul espouses in Philippians 3. Philippians 3, 7, he says, But whatever I gain, I... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, catch this, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. What is the overcoming? John, Paul, they both make it clear that overcoming is not having lots of money. It is not never getting sick. It is not having the nicest car or clothes. That is not overcoming. Overcoming is defeating the enemy, even if it means losing your life doing it. It means never stepping down, never sacrificing, never compromising, always trusting that God is the one in control of everything that's going on, Satan included. That's how you overcome him. So I just wanted to clear that up. Next... I wanted to go ahead and develop this theme that John lays out in the first chapter, a theme of persecution. And this point flows directly from the previous point. So I'd mentioned last week that John gently introduces the idea of persecution by telling his readers the reason for his exile 
to Patmos in chapter 1, verse 9, was on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's sort of an incomplete statement. He introduces persecution in that verse, but he does so in the previous clause when he identifies himself as a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John has received this revelation in a grand vision. And when he goes to write his greeting for this extended letter to the churches, he begins his self-identification as a participant in the persecution that followers of Jesus are called to as a matter of simply being in Christ. He has experienced serious persecution because of his uncompromising stand for Christ, and he has seen in this vision that persecution is part of the kingdom's advance under God's sovereign plan. So all of those as we saw the unfolding that the dragon is not stopping. The dragon does not give up until he is finally beaten for good. But at no point is he actually winning. So John understands that. John's lived that. John's seen that in his own life, in his own uncompromising stance, and in the things that he has suffered, in the exile that at the time of this vision he is enduring. But he understands also that suffering and persecution are natural outcomes of following Jesus. So this idea is repeated in chapter 2, verse 3, when he's speaking to the church at Ephesus. Here, we'll just look real quick at some of these. Because I want to make sure that I'm connecting up these things. I'm connecting up these principles from the opening chapters through the rest of of the book. When he's speaking to the church in Ephesus, verse 2, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. To the church in Smyrna in two ten. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. That's about as straightforward as you can get. I am allowing the devil to persecute you and imprison you, and some of you are going to die. Be faithful. In 2.13, to the church at Smyrna, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Once again, connecting up. This is a natural outgrowth of being a believer in the world and following Jesus, is you are going to suffer persecution. To Pergamum in 3.8... I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. He's commending this church because they have not folded under compromise. And then if we look in chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. There are a bunch of souls that John sees and and he's watching them worship. 
And one of the elders, verse 13, then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. These are people who have died suffering persecution and coming through tribulation. And then, once again, in 17, we see that the whore of Babylon, in verse 6 of chapter 17, she is drunk with the blood of the saints and those who have a testimony from Jesus. So over and over again, throughout the book of Revelation, John is making it sure that you should know without any doubt that by following Jesus, you are not buying a membership into the world's feel-good society. That is not what you have signed up for. And if you think that's what you've signed up for, then John is here, and Jesus has specifically revealed to him that that is not what you should think about what this is. That is not what we are doing as members of his kingdom. Jesus himself, during his earthly ministry, made it abundantly clear. In Matthew 5, right in the Beatitudes, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Nothing has changed. John is not introducing something new that the Lord Jesus himself did not tell his own disciples when he explains to these churches in Asia that suffering and persecution and even death are part of it. And this is a major theme throughout the Revelation. In Matthew 10, 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and the child will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. John 15, 18 through 21, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. When it comes down to it, the revelation communicates that there are people and a humanistic system that denies God, denies his authority, and even hates him. We all have loved ones who are unbelievers. And it's a tough thing to think that at the root of their problem is that they hate God. And that some of us have had friends where we have to part ways because at the root of their problem, they did not love Jesus. And so they could not stand being around you anymore. That happens. John says that's natural course for a believer. That it's sad. It hurts. He's not saying it's not real or it's not painful, but it is right in a sense. It is to be expected. We did not join the feel-good society. John reinforces Jesus' example in chapter 1, verse 5, when he calls Christ the faithful witness and the firstborn of the dead. That he kept his testimony of the Father so steadfastly so obediently that the world hated him to the point of killing him just to get him to stop testifying of his father. And that's what we are. That's what we're called to. 
And so it's tough. I'll stop and see if there are any questions. That's kind of heavy. Let it, let it sit there for a second. See if there are any questions or comments so far. Because I can just go on and on. <laughs> yeah, Hugh? You made a point about us participating in the sufferings of Christ and the victory over Satan and quickly moved on. Could you just repeat that point that you made that you kind of had it in your mind? Ah, I see. That I'll read this paragraph again and see if it comes to me. Otherwise, I'll post it on the website, the audio, and we can double check. But John knows what was it I was saying about the uh, what is overcoming? That overcoming is not making a lot of money or always being healthy or being the most popular person. That is not what overcoming is in the world of the Apostle John, in the world of Revelation, and I think in the world of Jesus. In other words, reality. But overcoming looks like not compromising with sin. Suffering, no matter what happens, for the sake of Jesus' name, even unto death. So... John knows from personal experience how painful the attacks of Satan can be. He communicates in chapter 1, verse 9, that he is a participant in the suffering that naturally comes when people follow Jesus. His vision of the dragon confirms that the enemy of our souls is a determined and vicious being, bent on defacing or destroying everything that reflects the goodness and glory of God. Nevertheless, at every turn, Jesus overcame and overcomes. One of the great ironies of human history is that the suffering and humiliation of the Lord of glory resulted in his great kingship, the defeat of all his enemies, and the eternal salvation of a people who will forever reign with him. If we pay special attention to Revelation 12:11, and they overcame him, meaning the serpent, by the blood of the lamb, that is, justification, the redemption that's bought through that, the subsequent sanctification that we go through, the spirit dwelling in us, what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross, they overcame him by that and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. So in the same counterintuitive way that Jesus overcomes the enemy through suffering and death, similarly, we, his people, participate in suffering that results in victory over Satan, just like our master demonstrated. Did that answer the question? Yeah, I just want, I just want to soak in that. <laughs> so, it's good. It's, good. it's like a salt bath. <laughs> if you got cuts, it stings a little. Otherwise, it's very soothing. Okay. So, to the next theme that I think John develops early on in Revelation that will that is connected to the rest of the New Testament and throughout the book of Revelation. And I'm pulling this from different different places, but uh, mostly from right here in chapter 1 where he says, John to the seven churches in Asia, and then go on down, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I'm kind of drawing these themes out of that because in that is packed a lot. 
So I wanted to start off first with that we are beloved to him who loved us, that we are beloved, that believers, followers of Jesus Christ, those who actually he has called and he has saved and who know him are his beloved. In fact, the revelation will pick this up and develop this into his people are a temple that is decked out with jewels. And that temple and that city are his bride. So in Revelation chapter 19, verse 7 through 8, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Jesus sees us as... His special people. And John opens this up in the very beginning with, To him who loved us, us corporately, us as a whole group. Yes, you and you and you, but us. He looks at us as, as a body. As a body that he cares for. As a body that he nourishes. The Apostle Paul picks up this theme in some respects in Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, when he talks about Christ's headship over the church, that he kind of relates those two ideas to a husband and a wife, and that Christ having that headship and that concern and that care. But more specifically, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 says, I wish you would bear with me, in verse 1, bear with me in a little foolishness, do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Throughout the New Testament, there's this idea of his people are distinctly loved in a special way. And that that love, as John goes on to describe both the warnings and the punishments for that people, it's out of that love that he's moving, that the Lord Jesus is moving, because he is jealous for a pure bride. He is jealous for his people. He looks at us with concern and wants to nurture us, not just individually, but as a whole group too. So we'll see that as he speaks to the churches, he's speaking to groups of people. And he has concern for those groups to operate the way they should, to live the way they should, and he speaks to them corporately. The second idea is that we've been freed, freed from our sins through his blood. And this is connected all over the New Testament, but in particular, Romans 6, verses 1 through 7. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So the Lord Jesus, through what he did, freed us from sin, freed us from from the penalty, freed us from the wrath of God, 
freed us from its power. We have the ability not to sin. And I have to say that really carefully, otherwise theologians in the room might start throwing St. Augustine at me or something. We have the ability not to sin, whereas unbelievers in their unregenerate state don't have a choice. There's not a choice. Now, there may be varying levels of morality, but in front of God, it just all looks like a mess. It just all looks filthy to Him. So we've been freed from that. And then last, yeah, last, he says that we're a kingdom and priests. And he'll repeat this, John will repeat this again in chapter 5, speaking of Jesus And when he had taken the scroll, verse 8 through 10, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The Apostle Peter, to connect it not just forward into the rest of the book of Revelation, but backward into the rest of the New Testament. The Apostle Peter, in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, says, I'll get to the good part. But you are a chosen race. I believe it's verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And all of this comes from Exodus chapter 19. This is what God had always intended his Israel of promise to do, his Israel of covenant to do. Exodus 19 verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So it was always God's desire to make a people for himself. Special, set apart, holy. A kingdom full of priests whose every action every day, even while suffering, even while being killed, was a priestly act of worship to their God. A people whose attitudes was always directed toward him in one of service, in one of worship. And so John, early on, and he's pulling, I hope I've demonstrated, that what has happened is he has seen this vision. And as he comes back to the beginning to write this letter, to obey the Lord's command and write what he's seen, he is using that language as part of his doxology. It has become clear, not that it was necessarily new to him, because we see that it's in other apostles' writings, that it was clear that this was known to them, that this was how they viewed both Christ's affections for his church and the church's role in the world as a kingdom, a priestly kingdom. But as he thinks about that, as he writes that opening chapter, that starts coming back out of him. And he starts praising. You see that that's actually a... A passage of praise. So we're also, all those things, and if we get down to the lampstands, we'll see that we're also lights. 
One thing I wanted to develop and hopefully show you is that Jesus walks in the midst of his people, observing their ways and commending or correcting as is needed. Jesus is among his people and he associates himself with his church's existence. We're a special people to him, his bride, his nation, his priesthood. Jesus loves his church as his own body. He cares for it and nurtures it. He loves his people in a way that he does not love those on the outside. The church is his bride, his wife-to-be. It is his kingdom, a manifestation of his reign here and in the age to come. The church is Christ's brotherhood of adopted siblings. It is a priesthood of those who offer up worship to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to his great delight. All of that is true in in a global sense. All of that is very global in the way I've laid it out. But we see that, as we read the end of the vision there at the end of chapter 1, that there are seven lampstands, plural. And that this plays out also in a local sense, in local assemblies, in local congregations. That Jesus is aware of the activities of all of his assemblies of believers. He even says in Matthew 18, that again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Jesus inhabits his people, both individually, we know that this is true, but in, in a special sense, in a corporate way, that he walks among the lampstands. So as I read this over the past few months and during some of the worship services, it's given me a heightened affection for the church, for his people, for his body, for his priests, that we're in a a brotherhood, a fraternity of priests and kings, all of us, forever, in a special way. So that if you spend your whole life in service to the church of Jesus, you will have spent a life pleasing to the Lord. This does not mean that we ignore those on the outside, but that we ought to compel them inside. Instead of compromising and joining their disobedience. And this is what Paul, sorry, this is what the Apostle John is dealing with. Is those who, according to Jesus' word, are actually compromising with the outside instead of being the kingdom of priests that draw them in. So it's like Jesus said on the night he was betrayed in John 13, 31 through 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this. Now catch it by this, that you love each other. You, my followers, you Brothers and sisters, you fellow believers, that is how all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. And I think sometimes people get that passage mixed up and think that he's talking about love for people outside of the church. Now, I'm not saying Jesus doesn't want us to love people outside the church. I just, I pray that you get the vision of the church that I think the Apostle John had. And that Jesus is trying to, when he looks at her as the new Jerusalem, the temple of God, the place that God inhabits, his bride whom he died for. And that when you see it that way, that 
when we have that affection for each other, then yes, they want in. And we won't want to compromise and join them in disobedience on the outside. And I'll pause again. Wowing them into stunned silence. I like it. I like it. All right. I got about 11, I'm going to say, yeah, 10 minutes left. So we'll see. If there is nothing, we'll keep on moving. We're just processing. It's kind of like when the circle's going on the computer. Right. I know it's heavy. I'm really I'm just trying to unload some of my meditations. Is really what I'm doing here. This is over the months as I've been reading it and connecting up the dots both in the rest of the book of Revelation and and to the the rest of the New Testament. These are some of the conclusions that have come out in my own my own thinking, my own meditations on it. I missed the I was gonna say, I missed the first class, but even just being here in this length of time has just kind of given me a whole different perspective to move forward in looking at Revelation. I'm just I am I'm, I'm with the circle. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that it prompts you to want to read it more. Uh, and like I said last week, it's not that every aspect of the book has an equal amount of accessibility or clarity. But there are portions, and I think it was intended that that the Lord Jesus and the Apostle John intended to encourage and to give a big picture of a very big Jesus so that people will want to stand up and grow their affections for the church and for the way God is manifesting his kingdom in the world. It's through the church. It's not through another way. That's the way he picked and that's the way he's doing it. So get on board with that or or there are consequences. There are consequences that over the next couple of weeks, if I finally ever get out of chapter one, that we will discuss. Thank you for sharing that. I, I'm glad to hear it. All right, so I'll move on in the few minutes we have left. Now let's look at this description of Jesus. So when John turns around to hear what he, to look at what he's hearing in verse 12, he has quite an unusual sight. It's right in front of him there. It's quite an unusual sight. But most of us may think it's unusual because we're not so familiar with the Old Testament. If you will turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 7, Allow me to familiarize you with Jesus in Daniel. Beginning in verse 1, and I'll let you know because I'm going to skip some points. In verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. It's not that he had visions and all he saw was his head floating around. It means he saw visions like in his head. Okay. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, now let's skip down to verse 9 because there's lots of animals and weird stuff coming out. Verse 9, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. Hmm. His throne was fiery flames. 
Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court set in judgment, and the books were open. Down to verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. A lot of overlap with what John sees when he turns around in chapter 1. Lots of overlap. But in case we thought that maybe... John missed it, or Daniel missed it, turn to Daniel chapter 10. Just in case, maybe we thought, hey, once is cool, twice maybe it's a coincidence, three times, and maybe we understand that there's something going on. Daniel 10, starting in verse 1, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict... And we'll scroll on down. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. So what does John see? John sees Jesus just like Daniel saw Jesus. The way Jesus looks when he's not walking around on earth doing the, doing the whole Middle Eastern rabbi looking thing. The humble, the humility thing we talked about. Jesus is no longer suffering humiliation. Jesus has been vindicated. Jesus is exalted. Jesus looks really crazy cool and scary. We see him no longer humiliated. John saw the same person that Daniel saw. The exalted son of man. The one who sits in judgment over the nations and over his own people. As the author of Hebrews, although talking about something different, the author of Hebrews in chapter 13 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So I invoke that in this particular scenario, that when, we, when John sees Jesus, he's seeing the same Son of Man that Daniel saw. And that's Jesus. That's what he looks like. Get a look. He's impressive. Jesus is wearing and behaving in a certain way that we can understand, especially through Hebrews, that he is the priest, the high priest of God on behalf of the people, and he is also king of his people and king of everything. So he wears a golden sash as part of his both royal and priestly scholars debate which, which aspect of this vision of Jesus means which thing, but it seems clear that Jesus is operating in several offices as the Son of Man, as priest before God on behalf of the people. He's in the midst of the lampstands as king over nations and different peoples, and as judge, both over his own people and over the nations. 
John sees him standing in the midst of, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> sees him standing in the midst of lampstands, and some scholars will think that this was the Arch of Titus. Anyone know what I'm talking about in Rome? So Titus storms Jerusalem, plunders the temple at the time, takes out the implements, and the Arch of Titus celebratory arch in Rome has on it guys toting the big menorah from out of the temple as spoils of war. And so it looks a lot like this. So we have an idea of the first century menorah based on the Arch of Titus, not just the description. from. And so some people, you will see that there are how many places for lamps? Seven. Seven lamps, stands, Jesus is in the midst. It makes it kind of odd to say that Jesus is in the midst of them, though. So I don't personally think this is what John saw. I think he saw Jesus walking in the midst through. And so he's communicating some sort of priestly activity, some sort of Jesus as king. And I think it's pretty clear, judge over all the nations, sovereign ruler of history, the one who determines what happens, and especially in his church. So as John moves forward in obedience to the Lord to write these letters... He's communicating, Jesus is in charge of what goes on, and you need to listen to him. The angel tells him that the lampstands are or represent the churches. And I have exhausted my time for this evening. Are there any questions or comments? And I promise next week we will actually talk about what he says to churches. Well, not next week, sorry, in two weeks. Because next week, yeah, Liam? Uh, first of all, I, I really appreciate you going through this because uh, someone else had commented this is really opening up um, the idea of this being popular. Awesome. You know, the, the genre. Mm -hmm. um, I had a question about Daniel's vision because it, it looks like um, it, it talks about the ancient of days and, and it's very similar to the description of Jesus. And then it says the Son of Man comes to the ancient of days. Right. My own. Passing opinion, so this is this is drive by, this is drive by, is that as we see, if we look, look back at chapter one of Revelation, verse four, when John is giving his greeting, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now stop right there. Who do you think that is? That would be uh, Jesus. Okay, then keep on reading. And from the seven spirits who were before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Oops. To dissect, to dissect them so narrowly creates problems. Now, it is true that the persons of the Father and the Son and the Spirit are distinct. But when you start having heavenly visions about who's doing what with the universe, it's a little hard to... To, to start dissecting them. So it is true that the Bible makes very clear that God created the heavens and earth. And we would normally ascribe that to some sort of function as the Father. And then, oops, you read the New Testament, it says over and over again that Jesus made it. So that's my drive-by feeling of that one, if that makes some sense. Makes it clear as mud, right? <laughs> Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, one other thing I would comment, I guess, is that uh, 
Jerry has been commenting, I've been listening to some of the sermons a lot from First Corinthians, how, mm-hmm. like, for example, uh, who has known the mind of the Lord, but we have the mind of Christ. And he's, there's the same parallel that right. we're thinking of God the Father, but in this case, Paul is making reference to Christ. Right, and throughout the New Testament... Paul does it, and I think somewhat based on Paul's influence, Luke does it to insinuate strongly that you ought to understand that the God that we call yud heh vav that that God is Jesus. And so while we would call him the Father, he's also saying that he is Jesus, that he has, that God made him both kurion, Kai Christon, that God made him both Lord and Christ. And so, what is involved in all that lordship? Well, I think to a Semitic, a, a Hellenized Semitic ear, you're going to understand that Kurios means the four letter name, because we don't say the four letter name. And at the same time, Christos meaning Messiah. So, you're saying, what? You're saying Messiah is the God? Is God? I don't, you know, so kind of a category buster for them. And so we understand it, and I put that in air quotes, we understand that as the Trinity. <laughs> All right. I, think, I think so often with this, we think in time, and we try to put everything in time and in a box, mm-hmm. and we're now talking about something we can't, can't comprehend, because we can't, we can't ever move ourselves from time. Well, we can put the, I like to say we can put the fences on it, which means we know where we shouldn't go. But we may not be able to sketch the fine edges inside the fences. There are some things, once again, we talk about exegetical certainty or uncertainty. So there are something, is the Ancient of Days the Father? Sure, sounds good. Is the Ancient of Days Jesus? Sure, maybe. I don't, you know. So that's my, that's my drive-by opinion of it. Uh, but the, the, New Testament, the Old Testament and the New Testament are clear that, that sometimes, and you, even when you read Revelation, for those of you who will now brave it, it will be difficult sometimes to know who is talking, God or an angel or Jesus. And by God, I mean the Father. Although he seems to speak very little, but there are a couple times where you're like, wait a second, was that the Father? That was the Father, that wasn't... Okay, because the angel is mediating this vision, and so he's speaking on behalf of either one, and to say that the Father and the Son aren't one would be untrue, and at the same time, they're distinct. Hey, Trinity lesson for the evening, free of charge. All right, I'll go ahead and pray, and we'll close up for the evening. Lord, we thank you, and we give you praise. We thank you for loving us, for calling us, for making us a people, a kingdom, priests, for adopting us as your children. We bless your name. Lord, I pray that you continue to open our hearts to all that your word has for us. Help us to walk in humility when we come to it, but with expectant hearts, desiring to meet you and to see you. So we thank you for this evening and what you're doing in the midst of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.